Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. Tonight, the director of the FBI... On the rise in violent crime in America, lessons from January 6, and what he believes is the greatest threat to the United States. In counterintelligence, does anything worry you more than Russia? The biggest threat we face as a country from a counterintelligence perspective is from the People's Republic of China, and especially the Chinese Communist Party. They are targeting our innovation, our trade secrets, our intellectual property, uh, on a scale that's unprecedented in history. 11 years ago, a team of two dozen Navy SEALs flew under the cover of darkness into Abbottabad, Pakistan, to carry out one of the most important counterterrorism missions in history, to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. 30 minutes into that mission, the SEALs had their man, and something they were not expecting. Thousands of pages of Osama bin Laden's personal letters and notes. How important was that last-minute decision by the SEAL team to take those documents? Bin Laden's greatest fear was about exposing al-Qaeda's secrets. New York City has had all kinds of larger-than-life mayors, but never anyone quite like Eric Adams. Dapperly dressed with a pierced ear and dramatic life story. Spend money. <laughs> he says and does things that a lot of other Democratic politicians would not. There's probably a lot of liberals who are concerned you're a Republican. Listen, there are 8.8 .8 million people in this city, 30 million opinions, but there's one mayor that's going to make the decisions. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. 
With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. The FBI is engaging the war in Ukraine with an around-the-clock cyber defense against Russian military hackers. In a rare interview, FBI Director Christopher Wray told us how the Bureau is engaging that war while fighting rising violence at home, terrorism abroad, and the unprecedented scale of theft by China. It's a lot to take on. Wray leads 35,000 men and women worldwide with the dual missions of fighting crime and counter-espionage. We spoke this past Thursday at FBI headquarters in Washington and started with the Bureau's cyber defense of Ukraine. You have put the FBI on a war footing. In effect, we have. We view this as a as combat posture with respect to cyber activity. Your orders are to help Ukraine keep the lights on, keep the communications flowing, and keep their critical infrastructure from being taken down. My instructions to our folks is to lean in, to lean forward, to be as helpful to them as we possibly can be, to help them anticipate, prevent, defend, mitigate malicious Russia cyber activity. Has Russia increased cyber attacks on the United States since the Ukraine invasion? I'm not sure I would say they've increased it, but certainly they've continued what they've been doing for years, and the prospect of that becoming more destructive and more severe is something that we're keenly watching for. So we're treating it uh, as sort of combat tempo. We have a 24-7 cyber command post running, and we've had now for several weeks. Uh, we've been pushing out intelligence products to uh, private companies and others. We've been pushing out technical information to network defenders at a lot of these companies. The botnet disruption we're announcing today strikes a blow against Russian intelligence. In March, Ray's FBI defeated Russian military malware discovered on networks in the U.S. and around the world. The malware, prepared and laid in advance, was waiting to be activated, but the FBI electronically severed Russia's connection with its cyber weapon. And I can't get too specific about it here, but where we see a lot of those same sorts of activities, scanning, probing, preparation, um, you know, trying to develop access. And so the key is to work closely with partners, whether it's the Ukrainians, when it's their critical infrastructure, whether it's private companies here in the United States, to try to make sure that we're interrupting and disrupting that before it becomes more damaging and destructive. Wednesday, we followed Chris Ray to his morning briefing. Ready to roll? We joined the unclassified part, which was essentially 
good morning and what do we got on any given morning i'm going to be hearing about say a domestic terrorist trying to blow up a hospital in the middle of a pandemic uh, or an isis inspired subject who's trying to blow up a synagogue or a uh, you know our cyber agents racing out to a children's hospital to prevent uh, them from falling prey to a looming ransomware attack. Why did you take this job? You have to be right 100% of the time. I realize that this is not a job for the faint of heart, and I can assure the American people that I am not faint of heart. Uh, I was inspired to come back and take on this job because I believe deeply in the work, the mission, of protecting the American people and upholding the Constitution and the people of the FBI. Christopher Ray is 55, married with two grown children. He graduated from Yale and Yale Law. In the 90s, he was a federal prosecutor in Atlanta. Over the years, he rose to headquarters and led the Justice Department's criminal division. In 2005, he left for private practice. But in 2017, after President Trump fired Director Jim Comey, Ray was recruited. The Senate confirmation vote was a bipartisan landslide, 92 to 5. Let's switch for a moment from uh, counterintelligence to crime fighting. In 2020, there was a 29% jump in murder in the United States, nearly 5,000 more people killed than the year before. What is behind this leap in homicide? Certainly, the pandemic didn't help. There's a variety of ways in which that contributed to it. Uh, we're seeing more and more juveniles committing violent crime, and that's certainly an issue. We're seeing uh, a, a, a certain amount of, uh, of gun trafficking, interstate gun trafficking, that's part of it. And we're seeing uh, an alarming frequency of some of the worst of the worst getting back out on the streets. In 2021, there was a 59% increase in the murders of police officers, 73 officers killed. Violence against law enforcement in this country is one of the biggest phenomenons that I think doesn't get enough attention. Last year, officers were being killed at a rate of almost one every five days. But why are more officers being killed right now? Some of it is tied to the violent crime problem uh, as a whole. But one of the phenomena that we saw uh, in last year is that an alarming percentage of the 73 law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty last year were killed through things like being ambushed uh, or shot while out on patrol. They were killed because they were police officers. Right. Wearing the badge shouldn't make you a target. Ray lost two FBI agents last year. Laura Schwarzenberger and Daniel Alfin were shot while executing a search warrant in a child pornography case. I heard about Laura and Dan's murders uh, within uh, really moments of it happening uh, from our Miami field office. Um, and I was on the phone with their spouses uh, within a few hours and I was in their living rooms the next morning um, and uh, my reaction was uh, a, a feeling of ache, um, almost sickness inside um, in my uh, distress. Um, you know, it's the hardest thing I've encountered in this job. Can you say you're making any headway in violent crime? 
We are working very hard with our partners, state and local law enforcement partners, through task forces, task forces all over the country and through surging rapid deployment teams to try to combat violent crime in specific hotspots. Last year, I think we arrested something like 15,000 violent gang members around the country. And part of what fuels us to pursue this mission is our deep conviction that law enforcement's most sacred duty is to ensure that people can live free from fear in their own homes and neighborhoods. But Mr. Director, some people are in their homes living in fear of the police coming through the door with a no-knock warrant. And I wonder how the FBI can contribute to the reduction of police brutality, which also occurs in our country. Well, we take very seriously our responsibility to both protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. Uh, and that includes where it happens, uh, going after police misconduct if it violates federal criminal law. Perhaps the greatest controversy on Chris Ray's watch was the attack on the Capitol. The Bureau has been criticized for failing to develop intelligence that might have predicted the assault. Over 800 people have now been charged. Agents in field offices all over the United States engaged in it. Uh, and we take this incredibly seriously. But what you'd like to have is prevention. Our goal is to prevent terrorist attacks of any kind, domestic or international. The criticism of the FBI after January 6th was that the plans of these people were on social media, and the FBI didn't see that. We at the FBI shared information uh, through a variety of intelligence products for a solid year leading up to January 6th that raised the potential for violent extremism. What we did not, to my knowledge, have was intelligence indicating that thousands of people were going to physically storm the U.S. Capitol in the middle of the constitutional process. What did you learn? You can bet. I've been taking a hard look at how we can be even more uh, preemptive, even more aggressive, even more responsive to make sure that we prevent something like that from ever happening again. And, and you can be sure, Americans can be sure, the FBI is fiercely determined to do our part with the other agencies to make sure that that never happens again. One of the things you learned was that these militia groups can organize and mobilize. And that's part of a broader phenomenon that we've seen over the last couple of years of a variety of anti-government, anti-authority violent extremists. Uh, but a lot of the domestic terrorist threat that we face is, is not from well-organized, structured, traditional groups. In many ways, the hardest, biggest threat, terrorist threat, that Americans face here in the homeland is from what are essentially lone actors or people conspiring with one or two other people and using crude attack methods a gun, a knife, a car. So if you think about the expression that a lot of Americans have heard about connecting the dots, for the kind of attack I'm describing, there are not a lot of dots to connect. Ray works to connect the dots from headquarters with a $10 billion annual budget, 56 U.S. field offices, and more than 90 offices abroad. In counterintelligence, does anything worry you more than Russia? 
The biggest threat we face as a country from a counterintelligence perspective is from the People's Republic of China, and especially the Chinese Communist Party. They are targeting our innovation, our trade secrets, our intellectual property uh, on a scale that's unprecedented in history. They are, have a bigger hacking program than that of every other major nation combined. They have stolen more of Americans' personal and corporate data than every nation combined. It affects everything from agriculture to aviation to high-tech to healthcare, pretty much every sector of our economy. Anything that makes an industry tick, they target. What is the FBI doing about that? We are now moving at a pace where we're opening a new China counterintelligence investigation about every 12 hours. There's well north of 2,000 of these investigations. All 56 of our field offices are engaged on it. And I can assure you that it's not because our agents don't have enough else to do. It's a, a measure of how significant the threat is. Christopher Ray is not quite halfway through his 10-year term. That means by our count, good. Yes. Okay. nearly 1,400 more perfectly good mornings spoiled by that classified briefing. Do you go to bed at night and ask yourself, what did we miss? <laughs> I'm always wondering about the, uh, as I think Secretary Rumsfeld famously said, the unknown unknown. Uh, and that's probably the one thing that I, I worry about the most. What is the best guarantee you can make to the American people? I can't guarantee outcomes. What I can do is promise that I will try everything I can to make sure that we do the work in the right way. Uh, that our process has integrity, has rigor, has objectivity, uh, that we bring those qualities to the work, uh, and that we will follow the facts wherever they lead, to whomever they lead, no matter who likes it. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Eleven years ago, a team of two dozen Navy SEALs flew under the cover of darkness into Abbottabad, Pakistan, to carry out one of the most important counterterrorism missions in history, to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. Thirty minutes into that mission, the SEALs had their man, and something they were not expecting. Thousands of pages of Osama bin Laden's personal letters and notes. In 2017, the CIA declassified most of those letters, without context and little translation. Author and Islamic scholar Nellie LaHood wanted to read it all, 
She spent much of her career researching al-Qaeda with stints at Harvard and Cambridge universities, and she's fluent in Arabic. So she dug in, carefully examining many of those documents line by line. Tonight, we'll hear what she found, gaining a rare glimpse into the inner sanctum of al-Qaeda through the Bin Laden papers. This is the bustling city of Abbottabad, Pakistan. From overhead, you can still see the scar in the landscape. This vacant lot, where boys now play cricket, is where Osama bin Laden's home once stood, and where the world's most wanted terrorists hid until the evening of May 1st, 2011. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. The operation, called Neptune's Spear, took 30 minutes. But then one SEAL alerted command that they'd found a ton of computers and electronics and needed more time. The SEALs were granted 10 more minutes that stretched into 18. They grabbed computers, VHS tapes, books, thumb drives, hard drives, and notebooks, carrying them out in bags strung around their neck. How important was that last-minute decision by the SEAL team to take those documents? Bin Laden's greatest fear was about exposing al-Qaeda secrets. And so the fact that the SEALs decided to recover these, these letters ensured that al-Qaeda secrets were exposed. In 2012, Nellie LaHood was teaching at West Point when the CIA declassified the first 17 documents from the raid. She was asked to lead the analysis of those documents for West Point's Combating Terrorism Center. For the last five years, she's been reading, translating, and analyzing the remaining declassified documents, consulting with U.S. generals, admirals, and members of the special forces community to make sense of it all. <laughs> there are home videos like this one of Osama bin Laden's son Hamza getting married in Iran. Family photos, audio files, and letters, 500,000 files in all. Nellie LaHood focused on 6,000 pages of them for her book, The Bin Laden Papers. So you were creating kind of a narrative based on all of the documents. And you couldn't do it any other way. You couldn't have a division of labor where several people would take on because they're all so connected. Vague references in one letter can only be explained if you looked at several other letters. So really to, to get a grasp of what was really going on, you really need to be able to have read them all together. Letters were the only way Osama bin Laden communicated with al-Qaeda associates for nearly a decade because he was trying to evade capture. Bin Laden had television in his compound but didn't have access to the internet or phone, so everything was written by hand or on computers and encrypted on flash drives that were given to couriers to deliver. All the letters were backed up on hard drives. We see in the letters uh, diminutive bin Laden, somebody who is very different from this powerful figure that we were reading about daily in the newspapers for over a decade. And the disconnect between his ambitions and between his capabilities is confounding. That disconnect was clear immediately after the 9-11 attacks. Al-Qaeda did not anticipate that the United States would go to war. What did they think was going to happen? It's a limited airstrike. 
but they didn't think that they would go beyond that. But as the war raged on in Afghanistan, Lahoud says these letters show that Osama bin Laden was surprised by how Americans reacted to 9-11. He thought that the American people would take to the streets, replicate the anti-Vietnam War protest, and they would put pressure on their governments to withdraw from Muslim-majority states. A large miscalculation. A huge miscalculation. In November of 2002, U.S. intelligence officials warned al-Qaeda might be planning, quote, spectacular attacks that could cause mass casualties. But Lahoud says letters show that by that time, al-Qaeda was weak. Top leaders had been killed or forced into hiding, and the terrorist organization was rudderless. There is definitely a narrative that bin Laden was still controlling al-Qaeda from behind the scenes, the puppet master, somewhere hidden away. But is that what the papers show? Far from it. So he was not calling the shots at that? Absolutely not. She says Osama bin Laden didn't communicate with his al-Qaeda associates for three years because he was on the run. It's still unknown exactly where he was hiding. But in 2004, he reconnects with al-Qaeda in this letter, offering surviving members his new plan to attack America. He's very eager to replicate the 9-11 attacks in, in the United States. You know, he, he, he is mindful that now the security conditions are very difficult at airports. She read us part of this chilling letter from Osama bin Laden to the head of al-Qaeda's international terror unit. Bin Laden writes that rather than hijack a plane, operatives should charter one for their next attack on the U.S. And adds if that's too difficult, they should target U.S. railways. Then bin Laden, who had a degree in civil engineering, explains exactly how to do it. He wanted to have 12 meters of steel rail removed so that this way the train could be derailed. And we find him explaining the, the simple toolkit that they could use. You know, he said, here, you could use a compressor, you could use smelting iron tool. He's in, in those small details. At the granular, most granular level, What yes. does that say to you? He's very methodical, very methodical. He thinks... He doesn't want to leave anything for chance. Fortunately, he was never able to execute his plan. Because Lahoud says al-Qaeda had been gutted by the war. She read us this letter from Tafik, a young associate who was running operations for al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan. He's telling Osama bin Laden just how incapacitated the terror organization had become. The weakness, failure, and aimlessness that befell us were harrowing. We Muslims were defiled and desecrated. Our state was ripped asunder. Our lands were occupied. Our resources were plundered. And so and he's giving the state of al-Qaeda to Osama bin Laden, who probably hasn't heard this at this he point. He didn't know. He didn't know the reality. And he actually warns him that I'm going to tell you the truth as it is. Mm. And I know that some of the brothers here are not telling you everything in detail because they don't want to upset you, particularly because of the delicate situations in which you find yourself with. That delicate situation is bin Laden's life in hiding. By 2005, Osama bin Laden was living behind the 18-foot walls of the Abbottabad compound he shared with some of his wives, children and grandchildren, seen here in this video seized during the raid. 
In this clip, bin Laden's 22-year-old son Khaled is showing off the compound's meager gardens and animals he tends to. Khaled also recorded his father's public statements that were intended to be seen around the world. You can hear him giggling as the lights malfunction. But Nelly Lahoud says it was actually two of bin Laden's daughters who played the greater role in crafting their father's messages and jihad missions. The people who really worked on Osama's public statements were mostly his um, daughters, Maryam and Sumeya. At one, one of the pages, you know, uh, we find Osama soliciting explicitly, start preparing, start thinking about the ideas that need to go to the pub, into the public statement. That's his own words. Is this surprising how involved they were? Yes, it was. It was surprising to me. In the world of Al-Qaeda and of jihadism broadly, women are not part of the public face um, of, of jihad. But privately, the bin Laden women were very involved. In this letter to a relative, bin Laden's wife Sihim is mourning the loss of a daughter who died in childbirth. But then the tone quickly changes. And then she goes on to shame and at the same time incite the men to take up jihad. And she says, you know, our women and children are suffering while the men are being servile and coward. Mm. So that's, that's the kind of personality that we are encountering wow. about the women in the compound. Yeah. Al-Qaeda was also running low on cash. Lahoud says documents show that in 2006, Al-Qaeda had just $200,000 in its coffers, and was unable to support or control an increasingly fractious jihad. Still, she says, Osama bin Laden kept plotting. Lahoud showed us this letter to another young associate, Yunus, who'd impressed bin Laden with his sharp intellect. It says, this is specifically addressed to you, top secret, do not share it with anyone. It is Osama bin Laden's plan for another terror attack in 2010. This time, he wanted to target multiple crude oil tankers and major shipping routes around the Middle East and Africa. He says, it does not escape you, the importance of oil for industrialized economy today. Mm. And it is similar to blood for human beings. Mm. So if you cause somebody to bleed excessively, even if you don't kill him, you'll at least weaken him. Mm. And that's he really what he really wanted to do to the, Ameri to the American economy. She says bin Laden details how al-Qaeda operatives should integrate themselves into those port areas as fishermen. He instructs them exactly where to buy a specific kind of wooden boat to evade radar, and then, once again, goes into the granular details of his plan. The boats need to carry a large volume of explosives, preferably placed in an arch position facing the vessel. So he's not only telling them what explosives to buy, he's telling them how to place the explosives. In an arch position. But his final plan to attack seems to have been halted by something he never saw coming. The Arab Spring. According to this family notebook, a unique item seized in the raid, the peaceful protests were confusing and concerning to the bin Ladens. On one level, they were very excited by the fact that the people were able to bring down dictators. But at the same time, there were all these question marks about what is the value of jihad at the moment. And we find this really um, throughout this notebook, 
is jihad still necessary? Lahoud says bin Laden, seen here in the final months of his life, was struggling with the answer to that question before he was killed. U.S. intelligence agencies say most al-Qaeda terrorist activity is now being carried out by smaller al-Qaeda offshoots. Bin Laden's second-in-command, Ayman al-Zawahi, now heads al-Qaeda. This month, he appeared in a new video denouncing the enemies of Islam. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. New York City has had all kinds of larger-than-life mayors, but never anyone quite like Eric Adams. Dapperly dressed, with a pierced ear and dramatic life story, he says and does things that a lot of other Democratic politicians would not. He talks openly about being a victim of police brutality as a teenager, who then went on to become a police officer. He speaks out forcefully about addressing economic inequality, while also reaching out to work with some of the wealthiest business leaders on Wall Street. Adams got to City Hall by winning a hotly contested Democratic primary in which he promised to restore law and order. He's described himself as the face of the new Democratic Party, and people all over the country will be watching to see how he addresses rising crime, new COVID outbreaks, and the serious economic damage caused by the pandemic. Has there ever been a mayor who was in a gang, <laughs> grew up as you did, got beaten by police, and then join the police force. There's a subtext to the election. You know, I'm hoping the young man that's sitting in Rikers Island uh, because he's dyslexic and did not get the tools he deserved, realized that, hey, Eric Adams was dyslexic. Eric Adams sat in a cell. I'm hoping those who are on the verge of homeless are homeless and say, damn it, Eric was on the verge. You know, there's a great moment here. A bend in the road is not the end of the road. Just make the turn. Mayor Adams has been trying to help the city make a turn since he took over 114 days ago. Tens of thousands of small businesses here have disappeared since the pandemic. Unemployment is nearly twice the national average, and major crime is up 43% from this time last year. Nearly two weeks ago, a gunman shot 10 people on a crowded subway in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. The alleged perpetrator was arrested after wandering the city for 30 hours. Is the subway shooting an indication that this city is in real trouble in terms of crime? No, I don't believe so. When that shooting happened on Tuesday, Wednesday, people were back on the train. What do you say to New Yorkers who are scared and feel that the city is headed in the wrong direction in terms of crime? We removed 1,800 guns off the streets of our city since I've been elected, 1,800. 
And so we're putting in place the foundation of dealing with the immediate needs of violence, but we're also stopping the pipeline that causes children to get involved in violence. Adams supports social and educational programs designed to steer young people away from crime, but he's also called for a police crackdown on low-level offenses like public drinking and shoplifting and taking steps to clear homeless encampments and stop people from sleeping in the subway. He's deployed new uniformed police units that he says have been specially trained to confiscate illegal guns in high-crime neighborhoods without repeating the abuses of stop-and-frisk policies under mayors Rudy Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg. New York's last mayor, Bill de Blasio, disbanded the plainclothes units that did a lot of this work. We were so far in the wrong direction of really abusive policing in our city and country that people got so fed up that they turned the ship too far in the wrong direction. There too far is, to the left. To the left. There is a middle ground. We only talk about how do we protect the rights of those who commit a crime. How about start talking about how do we protect the rights of people who are doing the right thing? There's probably a lot of liberals who are concerned you're a Republican. Listen, there are 8.8 .8 million people in this city, 30 million opinions, but there's one mayor that's going to make the decisions. Adams is nothing if not confident. Watching him walk down the street, you'd never notice the weight of the city's problems on his shoulders. You've talked about swagger. <laughs> Walking down the street with you, uh, you have swagger, certainly. <laughs> and and you, you've said that when, when the mayor has swagger, the city has swagger. That's right. <laughs> Saturday Night Live has already taken notice. The city's never had a mayor with so much swagger before. I mean, y'all see me outside. Oof, the peacoats, the scarves, the shine on the baldy, though. I love that skit, by the way. <laughs> so what is swagger? It's, you know, feeling as though you've overcome so much that you can overcome whatever is in front of you. I, Eric Adams. New York has overcome hard times in the past, he says, and so has he. As Adams took the oath of office in Times Square just after New Year's Eve, he held up a picture of his late mother, Dorothy, who struggled to support six children as a housekeeper and cook. He told us there were times she feared the family would get evicted while he and his siblings were in school, so she sent them to class with extra clothes. She used to give us, uh, Anderson, a garbage bag full of clothing every day because she thought the marshals was going to throw us out. My uh, siblings and I used to call us the garbage bag children. I can still remember having this feeling in my stomach, you know, darn it, don't let the marshals be out there and we get embarrassed. You had joined a gang when you were 14, is that, is that right? Uh, 14, I joined, uh, but I was a well-known number runner at 12. You were running numbers <laughs> Yeah, that was the illegal old. gambling system. When he was 15, he and an older brother were arrested for criminal trespassing and taken to the 103rd Precinct in Jamaica, Queens, where, he says, police officers beat them. They just continually kicked us, kicked us in the groin over and over again. Every time I would see a police car, I relived the beating. Every time I heard a siren. How did somebody who had that experience with police decide to join the police force? Uh, the Reverend Herbert Daughtry and a group of civil rights leaders brought 13 young men uh, to the House of the Lord Church and stated that it was time for us to go into the police department and fight for reform inside. What did you think when they said to you that you should join the police force? I th thought they were out of their minds. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Eric Adams. 
He spent 22 years on the force, rising to the rank of captain and emerging as a leading voice for reform within the department. After serving seven years in the state Senate and another eight as Brooklyn Borough President, our first choice is Eric Adams. He defeated 12 other candidates for the Democratic mayoral nomination and then easily won the general election in November. You said a while back that you were the new face of the Democratic Party. Where are you on the political spectrum? I am a simple, pragmatic Democrat. But Mayor Adams was a registered Republican for seven years when Rudy Giuliani was mayor and Bill Clinton was president. What was your thinking then? It, it was clear, you know, I'm, I'm a mother say, boy, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> did she say that to you? Yes, she did. <laughs> I was a police officer, and I saw the violence, and I wasn't seeing any help on the federal level. It was a protest vote. Did you vote for Rudy Giuliani? No, I did not. I have the facts of my police officer. Mayor Adams was barely three weeks on the job when he spoke at this vigil for two police officers who were fatally shot while responding to a call in Harlem in January. And I'm saying don't give up. Don't become so frustrated and disenchanted to allow the violent people around us to do what they think they can do. Stand with families like these. He's also met with the families of victims of gun violence, like 12-year-old Cade Lewin, who was shot to death while sitting in a car eating. Adams argues that people who attended Black Lives Matter protests over killings by police should be supportive of his efforts to prevent people like Kate Lewin from being gunned down by criminals. Democrats don't like talking about intervention, but we have to lean into the discomfort of the immediate things we must do. Because you can't say Black Lives Matter when a police officer shoots a young person. But does that Black Lives Matter when a 12-year-old baby was shot? You said the, the Democrats don't like to, to talk about that. Why is that? Because when you talk about intervention, you have to use the term of giving police officers the tools to deal with violence right now. That makes a lot of very liberal Democrats a little worried. Yes, it does. Because that's Rudy Giuliani language. They have allowed Rudy Giuliani to hijack something that the overwhelming number of people of color want. They will tell you, we want our police, we don't want our police to be abusive. And that is the balance that I know we can do in this, in this city. He delivered that message to police on his first day as mayor at the same precinct house where he says he was beaten as a teenager. There is a covenant that we are establishing. We would give them the tools and the support that they need. But we are also going to hold them to a high standard. Mayor Adams is 61 years old. He's not married, but has a longtime partner and a 26-year-old son from a previous relationship. When he's not paying unexpected visits to police precincts or sliding down fire poles, he's popping up at nightclubs, openings, and parties, rarely missing a chance to promote the Big Apple. So everyone who moved to Florida, get your butts back to New York City because New York City is where you want to be. You get around. <laughs> I love the city, and I, 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 I love my job. You are an interesting New York character, don't you think? No, just the opposite. I personify the energy of New York. Our leaders have not always done so. Getting tourists and commuters to return to the city is one of his big priorities. I just have one ask, spend money. <laughs> <laughs> we are. 
Only about 40% of workers are believed to have returned to their offices so far. The mayor has tried to lift some COVID restrictions to help businesses without causing a major new outbreak. A federal judge has ruled that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they can't require masks on airplanes and other transport. You think it's a mistake to not require masks on, on planes, on trains, and in high traffic areas? Yes, I think it's a huge mistake not to require. We're still requiring it in our subway system and on our buses. The mayor likes to describe himself as perfectly imperfect. His critics would certainly agree with the imperfect part. Some progressive Democrats believe his law and order approach will lead to more police abuses without reducing crime. Advocates for the homeless argue it's inhumane to evict people from subways or encampments without offering them a safe and suitable place to stay. And government watchdog groups are deeply concerned about some of the mayor's appointments. His deputy mayor for public safety, Philip Banks, was once the NYPD's highest-ranking uniformed officer until he resigned in 2014 and was later named an unindicted co-conspirator in a police corruption case. Is that the kind of person you really want to have in your inner circle? We're in a city of perfectly imperfect people. During a time that we have a law enforcement crisis, Phil brings a lot to the table. There was testimony that he let a businessman pay for his vacation travel and expenses. You said you're not going to tolerate wrongdoing by your officers. Are the things he did okay? Listen, he could have uh, made better decisions of who was around him. What I do know is that we're going to have a very transparent government here in, in City Hall. Transparency is the best way to make sure those who are hired are doing their jobs. How are you, Mr. Mayor? The latest Marist poll shows Eric Adams' approval rating is over 60 percent. But it's early still, and New Yorkers are not a particularly patient lot. How are you, man? Adams told us he studied the history of past mayors. So before we left, we asked him for his assessment of some of his famous predecessors whose portraits hang in City Hall. I just want to try a quick, like, speed round, just yes. asking you what words come up when I talk about some former mayors. David Dinkins. Compassionate, caring, kind. Michael Bloomberg. Thoughtful, kind, love the city. Ed Koch. Eric Adams, many personalities. <laughs> really? You, you, you see your similarity with Ed Koch yes, a little bit? Yes, thick skin. Ed Koch, you should go around asking, how, how am, am I, I doing? doing? <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> I just give a thumbs up. If they give me a thumbs up, I know I'm doing the right thing. Okay. <laughs> if they use one of the other four fingers, <laughs> then I got a problem. <laughs> Next Sunday on 60 Minutes, John Wertheim heads north to Iceland. Not for volcanoes or geothermal pools, but for that tiny country's eruption of enthusiasm for Eurovision. Europe's eccentric annual song contest. This helps you feel more part of Europe? Definitely. Eurovision is a traveling circus with a big tent, one you truly have to see to believe. 40 countries send one act, and over the years they have run the gamut, to perform a three-minute song for a panel of judges and millions of televoters. I'm Anderson Cooper. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.